Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Security vulnerabilities are an omnipresent concern to our networked digital economy. Cyber criminals have executed attacks against healthcare systems, financial institutions, and government agencies that have included losing massive amounts of data on the U.S. government workforce. With the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, the Department of Homeland Security is promoting a Shields Up campaign to remind both industry and individuals to implement practical cybersecurity guidance to avoid cyber assaults on both networks and devices by unexpected destructive actors. Michael Chertoff is my guest today on Explain to Shane. During his tenure as Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, he was instrumental in changing the thinking around computer security as a critical infrastructure for both government and enterprise systems, treating our networks and the devices attached to the networks as vital tools for information systems that need priority protection. Secretary Chertoff and I discuss the importance of understanding the threat landscape to be prepared and respond to cyber intrusions. We also focus on the new form of cyber warfare the challenge of misinformation and the weaponization of personal data stolen from both the network systems and our individual devices for criminal activity. Secretary Cheridoff, welcome to Explain to Shane. During your time at the Department of Homeland Security, you were instrumental in getting both the government and enterprises to stop thinking about computer systems just as networks and instead begin to understand the importance of treating them as vital information systems that needed to be protected. Can you give us an overview of how both cyber threats and management of cyber attack have changed since you have been secretary of DHS? Yeah, I'm happy to, Shane, and I'm happy to be on on the show. You know, when I was secretary, uh, the internet was still relatively young as a commercial activity. Was the possibility of criminal groups stealing identification information or moving money illicitly. There was the beginning to be a sense that we might have theft of intellectual property, but it was not viewed as a major security threat in the same way as, let's say, terrorism was. But during the course of my time at DHS, at one point, someone from the intelligence community, a senior person, pointed out to the president that there was the capability using the internet to shut down parts of the banking system or the American economy in a way that would be comparable in effect to what we had experienced as a result of 9-11. And the president, um, as a result of that, said, fine, well, you've identified the problem. Now give me the solution. And so he and I and a number of other people put together a national cybersecurity strategy. And we began to look at the possibility of cyber attacks not just being about theft of money or information, but about actually interfering with operating systems. So the systems that are increasingly connected to the Internet that turn on the lights or run the water, if those can be tampered with or shut down, you don't have your lights and you don't have your water. And so that began to elevate this from being a criminal issue into a national security challenge. You just reminded me about the Arab Spring. And at the time, I was working for an internet company, and I suggested to our network operations guys to watch the traffic flow because we were watching the global traffic flow to see um, if we saw a big change of the activity when the Egyptian government decided to try to curtail what, um, what was going on there. And they chose really to keep one main pipeline open, and that was to the banking system. The rest of them were more kind of localized uh, communications process. So it was a real learning lesson for us all. 
And I think with the Ukrainian situation, we've seen kind of a, a resurgence of these same questions that we ask about the networks. And I think we've been a little surprised that maybe there was expecting a little more of a cyber attack versus the kinetic attacks we've been seeing. That might be because of what Russians, we, we all think of Russians as being exceptionally good at cybersecurity. But what have you seen with this, since this has been happening since February, that there might be some lessons learned or some thoughts we should be having about the Ukrainian-Russian situation? Well, let me step back and say the Russians were early to weaponize the internet and cyber attacks as part of the menu of things they use when they're engaged in not quite armed conflict, but what they call hybrid warfare. So when I was in office, for example, in 2007 in Estonia, uh, there was a popular movement to take down the statue memorializing Soviet activity during the Second World War. Uh, the Russians got angry at that. And there was a cyber attack launched on Estonia that shut down the government offices and the banking system for a period of time. And then we actually worked with the Estonians under our NATO obligations to help them recover from that. Um, in Georgia in 2008, there was an attack by the Russians on a Georgian military because they were entering parts of Georgia to try to break it away from the main country. So we had seen the beginning of the weaponization of the internet by Russia, and they've been quite willing to use the internet as a way of actually inflicting real-world harm on their adversaries. So Ukraine has had the misfortune of being the petri dish for cyber attacks over the last several years. Even before the most recent invasion in, in this past year, there were attacks on the electric grid, uh, two Christmases in a row to shut it down. Uh, there were, was an attack called NotPetya, which was ransomware that infected an uh, accounting software package that most of the big companies operating in Ukraine use. And what it did is it froze all of their data. Collateral damage to that was felt by Western companies with offices in Ukraine, like Maersk, the shipping company, or Merck, the drug company. So it's not new to see the Russians weaponizing the ability to operate with cyber attacks. And as the Department of Homeland Security has warned, we have found uh, traces of the Russians on our electric grid. Now, whether they were rec conducting reconnaissance or stealing information or both, it's hard to know. But it tells you that they're able to position themselves to cause a lot of damage. So the question we're asking now is, well, why haven't we seen more of this? And the answer may be simply they're holding it in reserve. Right now, what Putin is doing is trying to blow up as much as he can and kill as many civilians as he can in what I would consider an act of state terrorism. But it may be that when things quiet down in the kinetic range, that he will use more and more cyber attacks. He may also direct them against NATO as he begins to become more and more frustrated by the help NATO was giving to Ukraine. So warnings have gone out from the U.S. government to the private sector, particularly the financial sector and the energy sector, that they had better be on alert the possibility of an attack. Yeah, I think the Colonial Pipeline was a huge wake-up. And I'm wondering how you 
spiel about the different sectors that didn't think that they were necessarily going to be part of the attack vector and how they're doing on information sharing. Like during, actually, I think I've noticed it during COVID. It might have started before that. Yeah. The um, restaurant and hospitality section uh, decided to cr- create their own ISAC, which was especially important during supply chain management. But w- what are you advising companies other than, as we t- discussed for a second, you know, the whole idea that patching should be baseline. You should yeah. be doing that no matter what. But w- where are the best places to really be like, you know, making sure that your functionality is going and if you can be as offensive as possible? Well, I think what you have to do is analyze what are your assets that are most likely to be attractive to an adversary. And depending on the nature of the business that you're in, the adversary may be different. So, for example, if you are in the financial sector, which has become part of the area of conflict because we have imposed a lot of sanctions on the Russians, it's a reasonable concern that the Russians may decide at some point they're better off attacking the financial sector than trying to continue to participate in it. So we basically say financial energy and even healthcare, they should be alert for a nation state adversary that would be looking to shut them down. Other types of businesses may be more a matter of theft of intellectual property or maybe criminality, criminals trying to get things. Um, For example, when China conducts cyber operations, they are collecting huge amounts of personal data some of which they do overtly and some of which they do covertly. For example, they attacked the Office of Personnel Management. At least I'm, I'm, my assumption has been that it was them. And they stole 25 million background check files with very detailed information about 25 million potential or current employees of the U.S. government. They also hacked into major healthcare databases. The assumption is China is building a huge artificially intelligence-operated database about all Americans. So they will know everything about you, and therefore they can decide who's an intelligence target, who's a counterintelligence target. And so for them, it's not like they're looking to shut down the personnel system, but they're looking to, to glean information from it. The Russians are much more, to be frank, heavy-handed, and they've been more interested in promoting ransomware attacks or destructive attacks. They're quite skilled. The U.S. government publicly named uh, Russian intelligence behind the hack of SolarWinds, which was a software management company that did essentially supply chain work for thousands of enterprises online, which meant that there was now a backdoor or skeleton key that would allow the Russians at their, at their option to enter into targets that they were interested in. So I think what one needs to do is look at what are your key assets? Who are the adversaries who are most likely to want to penetrate in order to get at those assets? And then to build a, an architecture of security that is tailored to the particular tactics and techniques that that adversary typically uses. And one of the things we do is we help companies do that. We help them understand who the adversary is, what are the techniques most likely to be used? And then how do you configure your priorities so you're most focused on the tactics that are most threatening and the most serious? So you brought up in a discussion at the World Economic Forum in 2014 your concerns about mobile. And now in 2022, we are facing 
potential regulation by legislation, and it's both in the United States and Europe, but the idea that we should take our guard down, which is interesting when we've got DHS doing a Shields Up program, around mobile and say, oh, no, put anything you want on your mobile device, where we've spent years developing a more secure environment, as you mentioned in 2014, and would probably be next target area we're looking at. So what are your concerns or thoughts about that? Well, so I I think what I said at the World Economic Forum, in a more general sense, is as we get to the Internet of Things, where everything is now wirelessly connected to everything else and is, quote, smart, like your baby camera, your refrigerator, your alarm to the house, that creates more service area for attacks. And once you get into the network, there's often no limit to how far the adversary can go within the network. There was an institution in Washington some years back, which I will not name, it was not a government institution, that was hacked by a foreign entity through a thermostat. And that got into the database. So we have to worry about surface area. One area is the mobile phone. And just to be clear, you know, I, I do a fair amount of work with companies that actually uh, make mobile phones. And I understand their sensitivity about whether something can be brought in sideways into the mobile phone through an app that will then infect the phone. Because what most of the big companies try to do is vet and check any apps in the app store so that you have a you know quite a reasonable degree of, of confidence that the app does not have vulnerabilities, is not infected with malware, doesn't have an exploit that is widely known that can be used by a, a bad guy. And so when you put it on your phone, you're pretty confident your phone is going to remain about as safe as it can reasonably be. The problem with bringing in uh, apps from app stores that are not vetted or allowing you to simply go on the internet and download something is you're putting yourself at risk because you don't know the safety and the security of the app you're downloading. The example I often use is when you go to the grocery store Almost all the time, you're pretty confident you can buy the food because it's been checked by regulators and by the store to make sure it's not infected. But if someone said to you, come into this supermarket, but we don't check anything with the FDA, anybody can simply come and put things here and sell them, you'd be foolish to go to that supermarket. And I think that's the issue we're facing here. And in fact, one of the things which the the U.S. government has kind of been arguing for in general is more assurance in terms of the apps that people put on their phone or the websites they visit or the software or the hardware they use, that it has been vetted and it is secure and it's not infected with something. So that making sure that you can give people confidence is, I think, more important than giving everybody the opportunity to simply move anything in sideways that they want. And and one further thing, Shane, or some people will say, well, look, if you want to take a risk with your phone and download any old thing, that's on you. The problem is it's not just a risk on your phone. If your phone gets infected, the nature of the infection may ultimately wind up allowing someone to take over your email and use that to fool your friends and get them to download things that are malware. So again, to use a kind of a health analogy, um, it's a little bit like having an infection with, shall we say, COVID, and then running around and breathing on everybody <laughs> and, and infecting them. So I do think that we ought to think twice about simply opening the door 
to people importing any apps or any uh, hardware software on what is normally considered a pretty secure device. You, staying with the food analogy for a second, I saw uh, Commissioner Noah Phillips from the Federal Trade Commission speak yesterday, and I've always um, said that I wanted some version of emojis. He's saying a nutrition label, which I think is probably, for government reasons, better than emojis. But the idea of wanting to understand what you're downloading or what the ultimately it was what the app is collecting. And that's more around privacy. Or as I always say, I don't really believe in privacy because it's a tough emotion. It's an emotion and yeah. it's, it's data security, right? So if you are telling me that you're, I'm downloading this and you're the devil and you're going to use all the information possible to wake me at 2 a.m. to buy things on Instagram, I'll probably believe you. And that probably would happen to me. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that we, we are, I think, looking at that in the privacy area, and maybe we should be looking at that in the in the security area as well. Just having a, a really good knowledge base of what you're doing, especially going back to the um, OPM hacked. It, it, being here in Washington, federal workers are really sensitive to that topic. Like they, that was the first time it was like a wake up call to them, and they're yeah. like, okay, they have my, especially if they have secret clearance. You sure, know, they've got all kinds of information, and you port that same concept onto, you know, these devices. I'm never without my phone. I mean, and there's a good chance I'll walk out with many things before I'll walk out without yeah. my phone in my house. And then knowing that you could be just things not going well once you've, you you know, put that you know, situation in jeopardy, but also knowing that the networks come along with that, I think is something that not a yeah. lot of people understand. Is there anything on the horizon as we're in this interesting time in life that you want to suggest? And anything in particular that you think that, you know, people should be doing that are going to make the world a safer place just because this is what you think about all day long? Well, I think, you know, as you kind of mentioned, the way data is used against us is, I think, a, a very significant issue. What a lot of people don't understand is it's not just what they put on the Internet, but it's what everybody puts on the Internet about you. Right. And that can all be aggregated. So that even if you, for example, I don't do social media, but if other people see me do something and they s somehow enter into the social media, oh, I saw Michael Chertoff do X, Y, Z, then that becomes part of the data that's available about me. And sometimes bad actors get it. We see a lot of this, for example, is used for advertising purposes, but it's also used for particular for political manipulation. Right. And and disinformation, which is very top of mind now to everybody has been enabled and weaponized because of the ability to use data to target you. You know, we always had propaganda. Even 100 years ago, the Russians were out there doing propaganda. But it was done in a gross sense. It was aimed at everybody. And as a consequence, they had to kind of reflect it in a way that was more broadly appealing and, frankly, less persuasive. But now they can send you something tailored exactly to your concerns and interests in order to get your attention and then draw you in further and further to intensify and amplify the message they want to send. Now, some of the way we deal with this ought to be to have the platforms put a warning out when there is disinformation like that. But it also has to be regulating the way in which that data can be disseminated to third parties and used. And interestingly, the Europeans have made some significant steps in this respect with their uh, general regulation on data privacy. Now in the U.S., some states are beginning to do that. But I think the federal government as a whole is going to have to look at how do we give people control over their data, even if someone else has collected it? but you shouldn't lose your right to control how it's used. And to be, you know, candid, I wrote a book about this called Exploding Data, 
where I tried to explain a few years ago to people, you don't realize how much data you're generating. And you can't hold it to yourself, but what you can do is control it if you have the legal right to say you, to someone, you may use my data for this purpose or you may not use it. And so as we move to that model, that may afford us some hope of beginning to uh, put a break on the weaponization of our data. So just having the opportunity of having you here, you worked on a book called Democracy and Distrust with uh, John Hart Eli back in law school. Is that right? Correct. Law school, yeah. So now that you're seeing where we are today, what did you learn then that we should be applying today? Or are we just so far afield? Or is it just right what you guys were concerned about? You know, I have to be honest with you. I mean, I think the things that John Neely was worried about were, were judicial activism and also coming up with a methodology where when courts got involved in creating rights, it, were, it was f- a focus on creating rights that would promote democracy, that would promote human rights. I mean, that's still very important, but the challenges we face now are so much greater. We have, we, as I said, we have weaponization of data and disinformation. We have polarization. We have a general sense, and I, I, I hate to blame the internet for everything, but I think some of it is the ecosystem of the it's internet. It's a lot faster. It's lot much faster. faster than sending chain letters back yes. in the day, right? And it gets people, <laughs> people amped up. Yeah. And uh, the only time period I can think of that this reminds me of is the 60s. And I'm, I wasn't, and I was a teenager, but I remember we had assassinations, we had a war, we had riots, we had terrorism, you know, bombs. And there was a sense, alarm about the future of the country. And it was not just the US, it was around, you know, in Europe as well. But one thing we did not have in the 60s were, were major political figures essentially applauding activity that would we would consider terrorism or violent. And now, to my regret, I see a number of prominent politicians who either are silent about violence or in some ways are willing to applaud theories like the, you know, the great displacement or great replacement that are fueling Shooters like the guy we had in Buffalo. Texas, or in Texas, yeah. Just yeah, we don't know what the Texas right. <laughs> motivation is yet, but certainly we know the Buffalo motivation. Yeah, yeah. And you are chairman of the board of the Freedom House, correct? correct? So that's another, I, I would say, I don't work with them, I just admire their work. I mean, I do work a lot with the, the people there, but um, so those I always look at as lessons learned where we don't want to head, right? I mean, the, just the beautiful visuals that they do, if you don't look at anything else that Freedom House does, that shows you how, uh, that we are, there are so many areas of this world that are not working with freedom of the press and yeah. the ability to communicate. I want to give you a major kudos for all the work you've done with them. It's really well, great. Well, thank you. I mean, and, you know, they, they've been marking across the entire globe over the last several years a steady decline in democracy and human rights with only a few notable exceptions. But, you know, I'm encouraged when I see that people, the public, they get out there and they demonstrate and they fight for their rights. But all too often what we see is Someone will get elected, and then they will use their elected position to insulate themselves and cement themselves in power. Victor Orban is a is a good example of that. And as you know, some people have observed these days, autocracy doesn't necessarily come at the point of a gun or a military coup. It starts with a public that is willing to elect people who are expressing views that are hostile to 
human rights. And then that person uses the leverage of an elected position to shut down the press, to harass their opponents, and to insulate themselves so they can stay in power. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. My pleasure. Thank you, Shane. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.